in the uh, book called Calvary Distinctives. Chuck Smith, uh, who is really the founder of Calvary Chapel, um, just talks about what makes a Calvary Chapel different and says, you know, if we're the same as every other church, then we might as well just all join together. But he said, if there is a difference, if God's doing something different with us, then that's a great thing. And obviously we need to be faithful and to keep seeking and serving the Lord. And, you know, I do think the Lord is doing something very special with us. Yeah, I was just trying to count, and I lost count, how many scriptures this morning we've already quoted or alluded to or spoken about. Um, and it's a wonderful thing. You know, the Word of God is so much a part of, of us as a fellowship and us as individuals. Uh, and it really is incredible. You know, it really is a, a privilege. Uh, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. So, Okay, let's um, open our Bibles. Let's turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to carry on. Uh, from where we left off last week, let's bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord. Well, Heavenly Father, you are the great God. You are the creator of the ends of the earth. Lord, there is no one who compares to you. There is no other God. And we thank you that you have given us this record, your word, to instruct us, Lord, to give us wisdom, to, Lord, equip us for everything we need in this life. Lord, as your word says, that the word of God itself is there, that we may be thoroughly furnished, Lord, complete. Um, and so, Father, help us to understand the things we read. Lord, this morning, challenge us, excite us, we pray. Uh, Lord, bring these things, Lord, to, to reality. Lord, turn them into full color, 3D, in front of our eyes as we read this morning. Help us to, to imagine and to see what it was like for, for the disciples and the, the circumstances that we read. Make it real to us, we pray. But Father, also stir our hearts that this won't just be an academic exercise where we learn bits of information, but the things you speak to us, Lord, would challenge and change us and mold us, that we would grow in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just to remind you, you said Mark chapter 15, we're going through Passion Week. We've got to this day of the crucifixion. As we've said already, the crucifixion occurred on the Thursday uh, of this week. There's a number of ways that we can demonstrate that and uh, so on. We've looked at that in detail in the past and know that we'll come back in future uh, and just look at some of the timings. Um, but Mark actually helps us a lot because he gives us a day-by-day account going from the, the Sunday evening, uh, sorry, the Saturday evening as they arrive in Bethany and the meal they have with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and so on. Um, and then the next day on the Sunday itself as they go into Jerusalem, that's Palm Sunday as we refer to it. Uh, and then Mark gives us an in the evening, and then the next day, and then in the evening, so we can follow the, the week through, uh, and then we get to this day. Um, this Typically, the day was known as the day of preparation. We'll see that alluded to in the text. It was the day when, although it was a festival, it was a feast day, it was the day of the feast of Passover, it was also known as the day of preparation because they were getting things ready for the next day, which was considered a high Sabbath and no work was permitted at all on the high Sabbath. That would be the 15th. So we're on the 14th. That's the day that Jesus was crucified on the Feast of Passover, Jesus becoming our Passover. In fulfillment of all those prophecies, in fulfillment of the Feast of Passover itself, this lamb was taken on the 10th day as he rides into Jerusalem, uh, and then on the 14th day, uh, between the evenings, as Exodus 12 reminds us, um, Jesus was then offered up as a sacrifice. And last week we were looking at the build-up and the events, uh, and we've got as far as um, verse 27. 
Um, so that's where we're, we're going to jump in from now. So, and we read him, and with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. So crucifixion was very common. It was a, it was a horrible form of a torturous death, normally reserved for the worst criminals. Um, but this is something that the Romans had done many, many times, very familiar with this practice. But on this occasion, just three individuals being crucified. Two of them clearly deserve this, and then Jesus in the center. And verse 28 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Scripture, of course, that's fulfilled there. If you want to just turn to Isaiah chapter 53, a passage I'm sure you're very familiar with anyway. Uh, but Isaiah 53, this wonderful chapter that really just details and speaks of this uh, event that's taking place. Isaiah, some 700 years before this time. I'm just going to pick up from verse 3 of Isaiah 53. and It says, He is despised and rejected of men. This is obviously speaking of Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We all... Like, so all we like sheep are gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And then we're told, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You know, this incredible uh, prophecy, speaking of these things that would come to take place. Um, yeah, and Jesus here on the cross, in fulfillment of all of these things, numbered with the, the transgressors. Why? Because he was representing you and I. He was there to take from God the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. And we should never forget that. You know, sometimes as Christians we can get dangerously complacent at the fact that we're forgiven our sin, but we should never forget that Jesus bore the full price for every thought, word, and deed. Everything was laid upon Jesus. That was necessary in order for us to be declared free. Verse 29 carries on, it says, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. And that's a quote from John chapter 2, actually, is where it's recorded for us. Uh, if you want to turn to John chapter 2, you'll see it there. At the beginning of John's ministry, uh, he'd made, sorry, <coughs> excuse me, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he made this statement in verse 19 of John 2. Uh, where Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, just speaking again to those that were harassing and, and speaking badly of him. Um, and verse 20 says, Then said the Jews, Forty-six years was this temple in building, and thou will rear it up in three days. Of course, they don't understand what he means. And so he goes on and says, but he spoke of the temple of his body. You know, Jesus 
like as our bodies, or the New Testament like as our bodies to temples where he would come and dwell. And Jesus spoke of his own body as a temple. The Holy Spirit dwelling in. You know, what made the tabernacle so special, what made the temple so special, wasn't just the design or anything else. It was that the Spirit of God dwelt therein. The Shekinah glory indwelt those places. And that's what made it so special. Why was Jesus, in that sense, in his body so special? Well, obviously because he was God, but also because the Spirit of God also dwelt within him. And we are given that same Spirit. That's that's breathtaking to try and comprehend. That the Holy Spirit, when we are born again, comes and dwells in us. Jesus, of course, talking of his body, saying, knowing that ahead of time that he would be killed in three days, fulfilling all the prophecies, the prophecies we have in Jonah, um, going back to the time of Abraham with Isaac, and so many other scriptures. You know, it's an interesting study if you look at the number of times we have these three days in scripture. You know, Abraham and Isaac, it was three days from that time that God told Abraham he had to offer up his son to that moment that he received him back alive, as it were, as God said, no, don't kill Isaac. So many occasions, so many accounts in the Old Testament, we see that three days leading to new life and so on. And of course, this crowd that are mocking, that are laughing, start calling out and they say, save thyself and come down from the cross. I see most of them at this point just believe that Jesus is a fraud. You know, to see him in this humiliating way, beaten, all bloodied and bruised and back ripped open with the whipping and the the beating of the Roman soldiers, you know, so horrible, so grotesque, so humbling. And the people looking at Jesus. And maybe even some of them had started that day wondering whether Jesus was the Messiah. And then they see Jesus like this. And their initial thought has got to be, well, clearly he wasn't the Messiah then. Another dashed hope, another dream that's gone. You know, the Jews were so keen, so desperate to see someone who would come and deliver them. There'd be various uprisings and revolts going through the last 400 years of their history. And nothing had amounted to anything. Likewise, also the chief priests, they put the boot in, mocking, sent among themselves with the scribes. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. But what about those others that he saved? What about those miracles? What about all those people in Galilee? What about the people he'd raised from the dead? What about all those miracles? Were they just to be discarded and ignored? How did they happen? But they're quite happy just to put that to one side. Unanswered questions for them, but as far as they're concerned, finally, this individual who they was so concerned about because he could upset the balance of power. If he was to lead a revolt against Rome, Rome could come down heavy on Israel and, and take away the freedom they had. So Jesus had to be done away with. Verse 32, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, if you're really who you say you are, prove it. Of course, if he had done that, if he'd have come down from the cross, they'd have been eternally condemned with no hope of salvation. You know, we don't know how many of these leaders later 
put their faith and trust in Jesus. We know on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Peter's preaching to the multitude. He only may well have been some of these people whose consciences, whose hearts were, were pricked. We're told exactly that in the book of Acts. The people felt so bad as they thought of what had taken place just some 50 days before this event we're looking at right now here. And we read also, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus makes a statement that he could call upon 12 legions of angels, some 6,000 typically per legion in the Roman reckoning. So we're just a rough estimate, talking about 72,000 angels could have just shown up instantly if Jesus had called them. But of course Jesus didn't try and get out of this. He wasn't going to back out at this point. That decision, all the, the, the blood, the sweat, the tears in the Garden of Gethsemane had been that deciding moment when Jesus committed himself to God's plan, to God's will, as he had done throughout his life and his ministry. But Jesus now wasn't going to take an easier way out. You know, it's so hard, isn't it? Because, you know, in this situation, almost you want to see vengeance on these people. You want to see them judged for the things they're saying. Jesus was, was human, like we are, yet without sin. But how easy it would have been at that moment just to, to break, to give in, and to show them that he really was the Christ. And yet, his very name means salvation. This was the reason he'd come. And we're told that when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I mean, this is supernatural darkness. This is Midday, noon, when the sun is at its brightest, and then we get this darkness. And although we're not given specific details, it seems to be very analogous to the darkness that we read about in Egypt when the plagues came upon the land. The land was, the darkness was so thick, people couldn't see. And now people probably were starting to get a bit edgy. This was something that was unnatural. I don't know if any of you have remembered or been around when there'd been an eclipse. I remember some years ago we had a, an eclipse. And it was really strange because suddenly all the birds stopped singing. And it went quiet. And it was really quite eerie. Imagine this though, even greater than that. You know, this was a time when you know, there wasn't electric street lamps everywhere and, and so on. You know, just darkness. Nobody had time to, to run around and start setting up fires, although I'm sure the Roman soldiers would have done that just to provide some sort of light. But all these people that just a moment ago have been mocking suddenly now, starting to wonder what's going on. And we're told verse 34 that at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. Three hours of darkness. And Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is one of the most heartbreaking Verses in Scripture, as it seems God the Father turns his face away from the Son on account of our sin. You know, Psalm 66 verse 18 
says, if you regard iniquity in your heart, I will not hear you. That's what God says. And Jesus at this point has become sin. All the horrible sins of humanity, our wickedness one to another, all the things that have been done throughout history, everything laid upon Jesus Christ. And God now has to turn away from this grotesque scene. Not just the physical state of Jesus, but now all the sin of the world laid upon him. And at this moment, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, Jesus has always referred to God as his Father. But now there seems to be this separation that's tangible. And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calls for Elias or Elijah. Verse 36 says, And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The idea of this, of course, was some sort of anesthetic, something to ease the pain. It would have been some sort of drug, typically, just to take away the, the anguish that he was going through. But he doesn't take it. He gave him to drink, saying, let alone, and other people say, yeah, let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Just before we look at the second part there, verse 38, let's just comment just briefly on verse 37. You know, there's a number of scriptures that talk about our frame, the way we're made up. And Jesus, in this context, was no different than us. Jesus, body, soul, and spirit. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the book that we've, uh, the men have been going through in our studies, <coughs> the men's meetings, there's a couple of key verses there. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20, verse 21, all go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. They're speaking of the body. He says, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? Interesting, isn't it? It draws a distinction between animals and mankind, that the spirit of man goes up, returns to God. The spirit of the beast doesn't. Beasts are not eternal. You know, if you want one verse from Scripture that just shows that evolution is not compatible with Christianity, there you go. Very simple. There's a big difference between animals and mankind. Also, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, says, Then, speaking of when we die, then the dust shall return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Jesus here giving up the spirit. We're told in First Thessalonians 5, Verse 23, that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. That's who we are. The body, the, the fleshly part, the bit we understand, we see. The spirit is that which is given by God, often analogous to our conscience, that which is God-given. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the spirit of God. The natural man is spiritually dead. But the soul is the real person. The soul is made up of the heart and the mind, from what we're told in Scripture. That's who we are. You know, we don't get to see that when we look at each other. We can sometimes see a little bit in each other's eyes of, of the depth of what goes on inside. But when we look at each other, we just see the outward. God's interested in the inward. And our heart and our mind are the two component parts that make up our soul. Our heart, of course, is the emotional part. And our mind, the rational part. And both of them are necessary. Both of them can lead us astray. Sometimes we can be led astray because we seek for the rational, the logical. 
And that can be a real enemy and a barrier to faith. Sometimes we're led astray by the heart because, as Jeremiah says, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably wicked. But those two things are the component part of us. Interestingly, David cries in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, recognizing that that heart needs to be totally renewed because that heart has been so used to following after the things and the affections of this world. But the mind is to be transformed. You know, there's a process that we have to undertake when we become Christians. The heart is changed. We're given a new heart with the capacity to love and serve God like never before. That heart, as so often we've said, will never be satisfied with sin. That new heart, that new life. But the mind is continually transformed, as Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 tell us. And we need to keep feeding that mind with godly things. That's what we're told, to set our mind on the things above. We have to continue to feed our mind with godly things. That's why we have to be so careful what we allow in through our eyes, into our mind. Because it will become a powerful influence. We digress a little, but... Verse 38 goes on. It says, The veil of the temple at this time also was rent in, in twain. Torn in two, from the top to the bottom. It's easy just to read that and move on. But we need to just comment on this a little bit. I just want to read this to you. God put the temple curtain there for the safety of his people. For no one can enter into the Holy of Holies and live. Only the high priest could do this and then only once a year. But they tied a rope around his waist in the event he did something wrong. If he died as a result, they could drag him out from behind the curtain since they couldn't go in and get him and they too would perish. The veil represents the separation of a holy God from sinful mankind because our sins have separated us from God, Isaiah 59 verse 2. The size and the thickness of the curtain ensured that no one would accidentally fall into the Holy of Holies. As the veil was 60 feet long, from top to bottom, and 30 feet wide. And this commentator says, and was about one inch thick. And was so massive and heavy that it took 300 priests to manipulate it. So there was no way that someone could inadvertently trip and stumble into the Holy of Holies and subsequently die as a result. And that's what one commentator says, but... This one I've heard a number of times. Solomon's temple was 30 cubits, but Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits, so making it higher. So the, the height that we're saying, according to the writings of Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. And there is uncertainty as the exact measurement of a cubit, but it's safe to assume that the veil was somewhere near 60 feet, as we've just said a moment ago. Seems to be agreement on the, the height. But Josephus also tells us the veil was four inches thick. And that horses tied to each side could not pull the veil apart. Now, one suggestion is it's one inch thick, one says it's four inches thick. Either way, this is an incredibly thick piece of material. Even if you just get a regular curtain and you try and pull it and tear it, you won't do it. Not unless there's already a break or a tear in there. But we're dealing with something that is so extraordinarily thick there is no way, no natural way this could have torn. 
And yet at the time of the crucifixion, as Jesus cries out, as he yields up the Spirit, as a declaration that the way is now open into the Holy of Holies, that we can now come into the very presence of God himself because of his atoning death for us, this temple veil is torn from top to bottom. What must the high priest have thought? And verse 39 then says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that, he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. What a statement. I'll read you this because this just was wonderful. I got this off another pastor. And if you want the full... Uh, details of the sermon that's preached, but I just thought this was wonderful. This was the events leading to the conversion of the centurion. Number one, this is one of the first events is the fact that, that leads to this, is the fact that Pilate declares Jesus Christ to be innocent. Just think about this. Luke's Gospel, in an unprecedented move, Pilate says to the mob, to the crowd that are gathered, I have found in him no guilt. What a statement for someone who is about to be killed. As Pilate hands Jesus over to the centurion, instead of hearing the crimes committed against the state that justify the death sentence, he and his soldiers watch, according to Matthew's account, Pilate wash his hands in a ceremonial manner and say, I am innocent of this man's blood. Without a doubt, this got the centurion's attention. He was a soldier who had given his life to protect and uphold the law of the land. And his leader just announced that this criminal had never broken the law. The second event is an unusual exchange between Christ and a group of women. As they made their way through the streets of Jerusalem towards Calvary, the centurion and his soldiers would hear Christ make an unusual statement to the daughters of Jerusalem in Luke Chapter 23, it's recorded that the women from the city were following Jesus and weeping because of his imminent death. And they were weeping not as much because of their faith in him as because of their remorse over a Jewish man being executed in this manner by the Romans. Instead of feeding off their kindness and their sympathy, the centurion hears Christ say to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves, for your own children. Luke 23, verse 28. In other words, don't be concerned about me. Be concerned about your own families. Even in this hour, the compassion of our Lord causes him to stop and tell these women that they and their nation are in grave danger. Jesus, beaten beyond recognition, is on his way to die. And yet he shows compassion for other people who are also going to die. And this certainly would have seemed odd to soldiers, well warned by the crying of the condemned for mercy. Had they ever seen a condemned man care about anyone else on his way to an excruciating death? These soldiers would be struck by the fact that Christ did not care about himself at all. The third event that have mystified the soldiers is Christ's refusal to drink the wine mixed with myrrh. History recalls the customs, or the custom of the daughters of Jerusalem to, out of compassion for the condemned, provide wine mixed with myrrh. It's like a narcotic drink intended to ease the pain of the crucified victim, as we were saying a moment ago. Mark informs us that when Christ reached Calvary, he was offered this drink, but didn't take it. 
Why didn't he take the drink? Well, Christ had work to do on the cross. He had things to say and would not be in a stupor. He would not face death without an anesthetic so that every word could be trusted, so that every final act could be recorded and freighted with divine meaning. The fourth event is that Christ offers the soldiers forgiveness as they nail him to the cross. Luke writes further in chapter 23 that when they came to Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, and one on the right hand and the other on the left. But Jesus said, and the Greek implies that he kept saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I told him they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the context clearly points to the often overlooked fact that Christ was not offering his prayer for the religious leaders who had come to mock him, but Jesus was praying for the soldiers. The Sanhedrin knew what they were doing, but the soldiers did not. They were simply on duty on this fateful day. The fifth event is the pleading of one of the criminals to be given entrance into Christ's kingdom. Luke's gospel account records the dramatic conversion of one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus. His eyes have been opened by the grace of God to the truth of Christ. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, there is no doubt the centurion had already mulled over the meaning of the words on the placard behind Jesus' head that declared Christ's only crime. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember we talked about this last week. In Hebrew, it declared Yahweh. This Roman centurion looking at these things. Now, this soldier here is one of the condemned cry out to Jesus in faith, asking that Jesus allow him to enter into his kingdom. Surely this man on the center cross will tell the criminal he's been misled, and it's all a myth. Surely he'll say something like, do I look like a king? Do I look like there's a kingdom waiting for me? But instead, the centurion and the soldiers I'm more than likely shocked to hear Jesus reply, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, I am the King of the Jews. I am the Messiah. There is a kingdom belonging to me, and I will give you entrance. After these words, nature itself, in the grip of a creator God, lends its voice to this scene in Calvary as we were just looking a moment ago. And the sixth event is this total darkness that sweeps in and covers the land. Luke tells us that the darkness blankets the earth at the sixth hour, and that it lasts until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon when the sun's at its zenith, at its highest point, and it suddenly gets turned off like a light bulb. Matthew tells us that darkness fell upon all the land. The word that is translated land in the Greek is the word di which can refer to a region or all the entire world. And sources outside the Bible indicate that darkness was actually global. One of these sources is a letter from Pilate to the Roman Emperor Tiberius, the actor Polita. He's actually a copy of this online if you want to read it, uh, in which he referred to the darkness he knew Tiberius had also experienced. Tiberius in Rome, Jesus in Jerusalem. Even though Tiberius was not in the land of Israel at the time, Pilate even mentioned that the darkness lasted from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. There's no doubt that the soldiers quickly started a fire in order to keep watch and that torches were lit as this supernatural darkness blotted out the sky for three hours. From this point forward, I believe, 
the tone of everything changes. The rabbis had taught for centuries that the darkening of the sun was a judgment from God. And of course, going back to the time of Egypt, there's no more mocking, there's no more jeering from this point on. Everyone senses that God's hand is somehow involved. Undoubtedly, the religious leaders now just quietly slip away. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that after Jesus dies, the crowd that is still at the scene will return to Jerusalem weeping and in deep contrition, Luke 23:48. Commentators suggest that this crowd were among those who respond to Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and become members of the newly created church, as I mentioned earlier. During these three hours of darkness, Jesus makes more statements. The seventh event occurs when the centurion hears the cry of agony and abandonment of Christ. Suddenly, out of the darkness, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the centurion would have noticed that Jesus is not referring to God as his Father. For the first time in Scripture, Jesus does not address God as his Father, nor is there intimate communion at this point. As Jesus takes upon himself our transgressions, as Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin on our behalf. As Jesus becomes a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And as Jesus is delivered up because of our transgressions, Romans 4.25. And as Jesus bears our sin in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus Christ is expressing the agony of separation from his Father, but is experiencing it in a way that connects the specifics of death by crucifixion with the words of Scripture, particularly Psalm 22. It's just another piece of evidence that announced his deity. Psalm 22 is a, a psalm that details these events, and Jesus specifically quoting from, alluding to that psalm, drawing this all together. The eighth event that occurs when the centurion hears Christ deliver a shout of completion when the darkness is about to lift, John's gospel records that Jesus cried out, It is finished. The statement is one word in the Greek language. It's to telestine. It literally means paid in full. The gospel is being delivered in a word. Jesus did not cry out, I am finished, but it is finished. The work that he'd been sent to accomplish. The perfect tense of this verb that he shouted means, It is finished. And it always will be finished. Amen. What a strange word this is for a dying man to cry. However, this is not strange for the Christian. This is the cry of the believer's deliverance, the shout of their forgiveness, the declaration of their eternal justification. And this is not the end of the story. It's merely picking up speed. Luke then includes this final word as Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The centurion hears Jesus reverting back to calling God Father. Why did Jesus do this? Because it was finished. In the darkness on the cross, Christ has paid the price. Christ had paid the eternal sacrifice for our sins and now no longer abandoned. Christ offers up his spirit to the care of his Father. And the ninth example of the event one of the final events that the centurion will literally feel is an earthquake. As Christ bows his head in death, Matthew records that the earth began to shudder so violently and to shake that rocks split apart. That would be terrifying for any of us. 
But throughout the course of Jewish history, an earthquake was a sign of the presence of God. This was true even to a Gentile Roman soldier. He's clearly seen enough. And it's no wonder that the centurion stood at the cross and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It all makes sense. This compassion, the dignity, the promise of the kingdom, the communication with God his Father, the darkness, the earthquake. A Roman soldier is the first Gentile convert after the death of Christ, this conversion at Calvary. From Luke's account, this centurion was not quiet about his conversion either. The text says he began praising God. The alleluias of the cross came first from the lips of a redeemed centurion. Imagine that. He came to faith beneath the dead Savior's cross. He believed that this dead man was indeed the king with the coming kingdom, the Son of God. We place our faith in him because he rose again. And surely he had to in order to validate his claim. We place our faith in him because he is alive. The centurion places faith in him even though he had just died. The soldier was the first to begin singing praises to God for the sacrifice and sufficiency of Christ, and rightly so. The alleluias can begin at Calvary because at Calvary the deal was done. Forgiveness was finalized. The sacrifice was offered. And Christ's own lips declared, it is and always will be finished. Verse 14. There are also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the last son of Joseph, son of Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him. And many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now, when even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, remember we said about this, we have the, the high Sabbath occurring on the 15th, and this is now the 14th. There were two Sabbaths this week. We have the Friday um, Sabbath, which was the high Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the next day was the Saturday, regular Saturday Sabbath. Also means that the women couldn't go to the tomb before the Sunday because they weren't allowed to do the traveling and everything else and go to embalm the body of Jesus. And then we're told in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate. Oh, you could do an interesting study on this character. The, the, the gravitas that, that Joseph must have had to be able to step into Pilate, speak to Pilate. And ask, he says, and crave the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. Normally crucifixion victims could be on the cross for many, many hours. In fact, days. Marveled as if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he brought fine linen. And I just wonder again that what conversation took place there between that centurion and Pilate. We're not given the details of what actually was said. But I'm sure that part of that was sufficient for Pilate to say, yeah, okay, Joseph, you, you can take his body. Maybe just concerned, apprehensive, not sure. What has just happened? 
Joseph, of course, takes his body, brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. You know, people have said before, you know, why, why would Joseph give up this tomb? This tomb that had been carved out, no doubt, for his own, for himself and for his relatives and so on, and to give this tomb over to what seemed to like he was a complete stranger, but as has been said many times, it was just for the weekend. Jesus rose. That tomb was empty. Verse 47, to conclude the chapter. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, behold, where he laid. And we find that they wanted to go to the tomb. They couldn't go the next day because it was Sabbath. Then the Saturday Sabbath came. They couldn't go then either. And so they go the very first opportunity they get, which is the Sunday morning. We'll pick up there and we'll look at chapter 16 next time. Let's uh, read ahead. Uh, and then uh, we'll close out the book uh, over the next week or two. Lord willing, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning for these things, Lord, for, again, just making them real to us, helping us to see just the love that you had, not just for us, Lord, but even on your way to that place of the skull, the way to Calvary, as you spoke compassionately towards the women, Lord, as you cried out to your Father to forgive those that were nailing you to the cross with each blow in your hands and your feet. Lord, as the cross was lifted in place, and Lord, all of the wrath that fell upon you for our sin just reminds us again how much you love us. And Lord, with such a great love, how can we not respond with lives of worship, with lives of praise? Lord, help us to be like that centurion just so overwhelmed by these events that Lord, that we declare that you truly are the Son of God. And Lord, that we go to this world that is lost, that is so empty, this world that is in need of someone wonderful, that is in need of a counsellor, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord, give us the boldness and the courage and the conviction Lord, to leave the foot of Calvary rejoicing because we serve a risen Savior. We thank you for these things this morning, Lord Jesus. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.